Hello and welcome to another episode of Mostly Weather. Today we're talking tornadoes, in particular the Met Office's involvement in the study of this field of meteorology. So each year a group of scientists and forecasters from the Met Office head out to Oklahoma, which is the heart of Tornado Alley, where they pretty much get down and dirty with tornado forecasting. There's a lot more to it and preparations for what's been termed the hazardous weather test bed environment. Um, I can't see where the cool acronym comes from there, but I'm sure we'll talk more about that, have already started here at the Met Office. So in a moment, we're going to be talking to Steve Willington and David Walters, who I'll introduce you to. Uh, they're flying out to Oklahoma next week. But before we get on to that, I'm joined by podcast legend Nick Siltstone, a regular panellist and one of our global guidance forecasters. Hi Nick, how's it Hi. going? Hi Neil, yeah, very well, thanks. Looking forward to this. Yeah, so the talk of tornadoes, it, it conjures up a lot of strong imagery. So we've talked about them on the podcast before, but should we just go through a recipe of kind of how tornadoes come from and some fascinating facts, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, where to start? It's a big, it's a big topic. Um, okay, let's just start with this then, Neil. Um, for a tornado, the one obvious thing from when you look at it, you need uh, basically spin. Uh, you see like a rotating funnel that comes down out of the sky, and what are the ingredients you need to get to get that basically? And um, yeah, relatively, I'd say relatively simple, relatively small. We just need some sort of spin in the lower part of the atmosphere, um, in whichever direction, and that to be then stretched into the vertical by something called an updraft. Um, so that would need a convection or, you know, like a shower, something like that. As yeah, well. so so a lot of people maybe get the wrong idea about tornadoes because we see them spinning around, a, let me get this right, see them spinning around a, a vertical axis. We mm -hmm. sort of assume that's where they, they start off, but actually it's more that they start off with different horizontal types, you know, speeds of wind. That gives you your kind of layers rubbing against each other and then that gets turned upright by some kind of updraft, right? Uh, absolutely. We call it vorticity. Um, normally you'd, you'd think about it, a broom pull stuck down in the ground pointing directly at the sky. That's vorticity around the vertical axis. That's where you would think if, um, you know, vorticity comes from, from a tornado, but it's actually often a big component of its vorticity in the other direction, almost around a cylinder, if you can imagine that rolling above the above the surface of the ground between those different airstreams, yeah. uh, which create that sort of, that spin in the lower atmosphere. And then we've also got to take that and then knock it up, right? So we've talked about convection, you know, most weeks on the podcast. So how do we get the kind of convection that we need for, for tornadoes then? Well, it's deep instability. So for the real violent tornadoes, big convection, you need, um, yeah, very unstable air at, at medium levels, often quite warm, what we call a loaded gun type profile. So on the surface, we need relatively sort of cool conditions compared to the medium level air above it. But then as the surface warms and warms and warms, it allows a point where we can overcome that warm, unstable medium level air. And that allows you a lot of uh, a lot of energy, basically, as that buoyant surface air travels upwards towards so the top of the troposphere. Yeah, so we need like a cap on this convection, we call it, don't we? And that means that you can heat up the lower part of the air, make it really want to rise, and then it sort of pops through. Like if you've got a champagne cork in a bottle, you know, and you shake it, eventually the cork pops and then you get a huge explosion. Yeah. Exactly. Without that cap, you just have little bubbles mm. rising to the top. Cool. Yeah. And tornadoes, there. I mean, how fast do the winds go inside a tornado again? Uh, I, I wouldn't even know where to start or stop with seriously, that. <laughs> seriously fast. Yeah, they'd exceed 200 miles an hour on some of the most violent storms um, easily. And it's worth remembering, this is, you know, a thing other people will be thinking about is hurricanes and things like this. Mm -hmm. And first of all, these are totally different. And second of all, the winds in tornadoes are, you know, they're much faster than a hurricane, right? But, but much more localised. Yeah. And the complication is that you can have a tornado within... Uh, the clouds <laughs> that surround the high burn hurricane too. 
and then you know we'll go and talk about this more with Tornado Alley but there's definite sort of parts of the world where we get more tornadoes than others so this is about places where we can just get this recipe we've been talking about right yeah favorable the, the mid latitudes so between sort of roughly 30 and 50 degrees north a normal sort of um, really good recipe for it is to have a, a source of very warm tropical air such as the the Gulf of Mexico and then this sort of warm and stable air at medium levels is often sourced from a high elevated terrain or a mountain mountain range so in the states we've got the you know, the high ground uh, of the southern rockies in that area and other parts of the world for example the indian indian plateau or even though it's not as high as the tibetan plateau there's still a lot of elevated warm ground over india and that it's produces the thunderstorms in the uh, in bangladesh with a combination of the tropical air from the bay of bengal and as we've said in the podcast before also one of the places that sort of fits into this recipe is the uk too right in a different way i think I say when we talk about tornadoes, there's there's multiple classes of them. There's there's more weak tornadoes where the the vorticity is sourced from not just severe convection, but it's just from things in the lower latitude that's then stretched and produces you know your water spouts and funnel clouds. Your severe uh, tornadoes, the strong ones on the scale, are often associated with a mesocyclone, and that's basically a, a persistent rotating um, area of low pressure within a supercell thunderstorm, often sourced the, and and with the updraft. And that's needed really for the, the more violent tornadoes, which I think most people's imagination yeah. would conjure up. So how do we, how much do we understand about tornadoes and you know, how do we find out more about them? Uh, I'd say, um, personally, <laughs> I think I feel fairly limited in this audience, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think we've got a reasonable idea of the ingredients that go towards them, the things that make them more likely, less likely to see in a certain area the actual dynamics and the very small scale processes which lead to the the formation of them things like that i think there's there's still room to play for in understanding we're starting to do some really high resolution or we are not but some other people are starting to do some really high resolution modeling studies now that have attempted to create some of the bigger tornadoes over recent years that have shown some interesting patterns but uh, i'd say still not fully understood exactly why and where you know the strongest tornadoes form in one cell and not the other. It's so yeah, there's still room for finding out more about how these work. So this is probably a good time to bring in our two specialist guests for the week. So we've got Steve Willington, who's the chief meteorologist and head of operations to research. Hi, Steve. Hi. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Confusingly, we've got Dave Walters, who instead of being the head of operations to research, is the head of research to operations. So hi, Dave. Thanks for coming on. Hello. And so you guys are. Tornado nerds, is that a fair description of your job? Uh, so, yeah, Steve, tell us about what you do at the, at the Met Office. Yeah, I'd probably prefer to avoid the term tornado nerd. Um, <laughs> it's more complicated than that, yeah. is it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was invited out to um, Oklahoma back in 2012 to take part in the hazardous weather testbed. So it's a testbed which is run by the Storm Prediction Centre um, and the National Severe Storms Laboratory. And the Met Office has always contributed occasionally to that. Um, various scientists going out um, and when I took part in it I, I saw an opportunity for us to actually rather than just send scientists and forecasters to that to actually start contributing uh, models um, to it which gives us an opportunity over a prolonged period of time five to six weeks to actually give our models a good shakedown in quite a challenging environment and to be able to compare them to a rich source of observational data as well which um, is very important um, cool. so yeah so I've been going since 2012 Brilliant. And Dave, what do you do then? What's your involvement with tornadoes? Uh, so my team are um, basically responsible for uh, coordinating upgrades to our, our operational forecast systems, uh, primarily over the UK, but we do global forecasting as well. Um, and uh, I started in my job uh, about two years ago. And last year, Steve asked me to go out with him to Oklahoma to see how scientists and forecasters are working together there. 
um, to understand the performance of the models. And um, basically based on that, we've uh, put in a greater contribution this year. Cool. Could you give us a bit of an overview of this um, this project then? So this is the hazardous weather testbed experiment. What is that? Um, so the hazardous weather testbed um, is a, a location, a, an area um, in a building in Oklahoma uh, where the National Severe Storms Laboratory are based, the Storm Prediction Center are based, there's a local forecasting office there and Oklahoma University's Meteorology Department who are um, a, a very good um, department obviously with a um, focus on severe convective weather and tornadoes. Um, and uh, they run what they call the spring forecasting experiment every year. Um, and basically they pull together forecasters and scientists from across the US and they've invited us there as well. Occasionally people from Australia, um, for other places in Europe will take part in this. And, and the idea is that you get together lots of scientists, lots of forecasters, um, you look at lots of model data, lots of very high quality observations in these areas where there's lots of severe convection and tornadoes going on. And you learn, use that to better understand uh, how predictable these things are and how we go about forecasting them. Cool. So this is this is like a real acid test for for your science. Then it's not just a case of being able to. I don't know. A lot of the times when we do science, it's in not an abstract sense, but it's not really got this on the ground kind of forecasting thing as well. So presumably you're working a lot about how people understand this information in real time and provide advice and that kind of thing too. Yeah, that's right. So as well as the forecasters and the uh, scientists that are involved, there's lots of social scientists that are involved. Interesting. Um, you do some subjective evaluation of the forecasts and the tools that are developed. And you need to be really careful the questions that you ask people. Make sure you're not asking leading questions, and that you're mm. you're um, analysing that data in a in a in a way that helps. But also the social scientists will help you to develop products that people can understand, both the forecasters and the public. Cool. So I thought we could kick off by talking about an example of a tornado. You know, that's been a real kind of important tornado in recent times. So this is the El Reno tornado in 2013. So what was particular about this tornado, Nick? Well, El an interesting one is it's it's believed to have been one of the largest tornadoes ever recorded, if not the largest one, I think, on Doppler radar imagery. Um, but when it uh, when you actually look at the assessment of it, it only assessed as an EF3 on the enhanced Fujitsu, uh, Fujita scale, which is the scale we measure tornadoes with. Yeah. And that's the, the reason for that is that it occurred in generally quite sparse grassland type areas. And so the Fujita scale is based around damage reports or surveying damage after a tornado to assign a strength to it. Because it was just across open grassland, it was a very difficult thing to do. So despite being believed to probably be one of the, the largest, perhaps one of the strongest tornadoes ever recorded, it's only actually gone down as an EF3. Um, it also behaved quite oddly. Um, it took a turn, I believe, to the left unexpectedly and caught out a number of really experienced storm chasers, which unfortunately led to them a few losing their lives really? um, during this event. So they talk about st these tornadoes being like right turners or left turners, right? And that's one of the the big things that we try and predict. Is that about right? Yeah. That, so I believe this one they were following following the or ahead of the tornado um, on its northern side and believed it was following a roughly east northeast path. And there was a turn to the left that was slightly unexpected that that basically cut a number of them off on this this country road. Um, so and yeah, effectively, there's video footage on YouTube of people racing to try and escape, um, escape the storm. So, Steve, am I right in thinking that you actually you were there? <laughs> um, yeah, I was in that area. Yeah, um, so I can I can put some figures on, you know, what Nick just talked about yeah. actually. So yes, it was the widest tornado that's been recorded, 2.6 miles across. Um, peak wind speeds measured by radar were 295 miles an hour or above. <laughs> Um, and it was quite unpredictable. I mean, we, we made a decision. We were on a field campaign with some researchers. We made a decision to get out of the area 
probably four or five minutes before Tim Samaras and those that lost their lives did. Um, and that's because it was behaving unpredictably. Um, main th thoughts behind that are that there was another cell, another storm developing just to the west of it. Um, so there was an area where there was some convergence, there was a weak cap. So there was, it was predisposed to provide convection in that area. And the, the western storm started to precipitate into the rear flank downdraft of the El Reno storm. Um, and that always leads to unpredictable behaviour. So it's this complex interaction between two sort of slightly competing kind of systems at the same yeah. time leads to very uncertain mm -hmm. response. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. So, yeah. so when you say you were in a field experiment, was this a, a sort of static setup measuring meteorology? Or were you in one of these sort of storm chaser vans that people might be aware of? Yeah, I mean, not so much storm chaser vans, but there, there was a couple of Doppler and wheels, down oh, okay. radars there uh, measuring um, yeah, because it it was a reasonably well forecast event. There was a PDS put out, which is a potentially dangerous situation, um, prior to the Arena storm um, firing off. So from that point of view, they're fairly rare. You maybe get one or two of those a year on average. Um, so it, we knew it was going to be a high end um, situation. Um, so there were you know, researchers within the area, and obviously Tim Samaras and Carl Young and Co were there as well. So how do, in general, how do people who are uh, maybe we'll resist the term storm chasers, but people who are going out to to actually make measurements of these storms, how do they decide where to go in order to be safe then? How, how, what informs those kind of decisions? Um, Location-wise, is something which you would make decisions probably four, five, six hours prior. Mm -hmm. You would look for areas which were predisposed to severe convection. Um, usually we'll locate within an hour of that zone because you don't really know exactly where the convection is mm. going to occur. Um, and then as, as convection begins to start, you would then relocate and get yourself a little bit closer. Um, but most of these these events, I mean, as far as the sort of professional research in, um, community is concerned, one of the main things is to make sure that you've got at least two or three escape routes if things start to go wrong. Um, with El Reno, unfortunately, the storm was unpredictable in its motion. Um, it accelerated forwards and it also expanded. You can imagine that if it's got forward motion and it expands to two yeah. and a half miles or, or more across, suddenly escape routes can get cut off. Um, so how fast are these storms? Or how, do you know how fast that storm moved? Um, Not in terms of the wind speed in the tornado, but in terms of the whole system moving. Yeah. yeah. I think off the top of my head, it was between 50 and 60 knots or basically 55, 65 miles per hour yes. in, in an eastward direction. And I mean, I mean, I'm guessing I've never been to Oklahoma, but I'm guessing it's well, it's very flat with lots of fields and lots of sort of straight perpendicular roads. So I mean, I guess yeah. if it's moving diagonal to one of those roads, that makes life complicated as well, right? It does, and a lot of the roads are gravel, compacted Oof. gravel. Um, so there are t obviously paved roads around, but um, there's a lot more of compacted gravel type roads than there are here. Um, and if you look at that particular storm, it's pretty typical of a, of a high-end sort of tornado, severe convection outbreak. There's a lot of chasers in the area. You can see them on the little dots. They have a little radio type link type um, setup. Um, and there's there's hundreds of them. And it gets extremely busy. Really? Junctions get blocked up and that. So all of those things you know, act against you, which is why most um, researchers will try and stay a reasonable distance back from the storm itself. Because if you get in too close, A, things can go wrong very quickly, but B, you know, a lot of your escape routes get cut off by tour buses and you know, it's even mm. mini buses with so in, ter tools. in terms of that sort of community of storm chasers then, do you, do you have a feel for how much of that is about amateur research, how much is professional research and how much is sort of thrill seeking? 
Um, difficult to, to, to say what the balance is. I mean, for some people, it will be you know deep fascination with severe convection. Um, you know, for some people, that's almost their annual trip. They go out for two to three weeks on holiday into the Great Plains, um, and they'll move around. You know, depending on where your, your, your convection taking place. Um, Do they take measurements and things like this, or are they there to sit, take photos and kind of see it up close? And... The majority, I would say, take photos, but there are okay. some amateur researchers out there which take some very good and useful, useful readings. Um, you know, a lot of the field campaigns which are run by NSSL and that they'll be they'll be launching mini sons like yep. you know into the the storm environment as well as taking radar imagery and and other stuff. Okay, so this tornado, yeah, twenty thirteen lasted forty minutes, and I've got here four people lost their lives. Um, oh no, four four experienced storm chasers were killed, and four more people lost their lives, and then one hundred and fifty one injured. So that's a pretty it's a pretty impactful storm. Mm. You know, we were talking about the the scale earlier, the the EF, the what's it, it enhanced Fujitsa, I think <coughs> scale. Fujitsa scale. Yeah. So we were saying that's that's purely defined by the the insurance claims, the economic impact of the storms, right? It's, it's measured on on the ground damage, right. basically. So there's there's a number of I think it's broken down to twenty eight categories. So you'll have um, uh, a group of you know, researchers. Um, emergency responders, etc., which will go out and do damage surveys, and depending on the kind of damage that they find, they will they'll link that to a, an EF, EF um, number. So, um, so why does the system work like that? Do you think then? Historical. Um, easy to measure, right? Easy to measure, um, and it's before the time of you know mobile radar, etc. Um, so after this particular tornado, it initially got rated as an EF five. Um, damage on the ground rated it as an EF3 so there was a big discussion I mean, it went on for many months as to how it's going to be categorized in the end and I think the decision was was also well, clearly a decision was made that they would stick to the pre-existing um, measurement style and ignore the not ignore but not include the, the radar yeah t- tornadoes are historically quite difficult things to measure right because as we've said they have they're short-lived they're pretty localized and so I, I personally did some work um, looking at the hist- you know, historical record of tornadoes and there's this great uncertainty about if you're looking 50 years ago, are there fewer tornadoes because there are fewer tornadoes or did just people notice them less? And it's the same when you compare sort of America with Bangladesh and places, you know, are they just reported less? And it's a bit of a nightmare in terms of historical record and, and observations, isn't it? Yeah, I'd say you've only really got North America and probably during the Doppler age that's truly sort of reflective as a record. And uh, yeah, I don't think anywhere else in the world is, is there at all. So Doppler is this technology where we can measure the speed inside the tornado by looking at it from a distance, right? Yeah, Doppler shift, you know, the effects of red shift and blue shift. Um, yeah, things are moving away from you. Mm-hmm. You bounce a beam off them, you get what I call a red shift, or you'll be able to tell they're moving in that direction, and blue shift, the opposite, where things are coming towards you. It's like the sirens, right? Exactly. That allows you on like radials of, of, of a radar, or looking out one direction from a radar, to identify what we call these vorticity couplets, uh, mm-hmm. which are indicative of mesocyclones or in the, the lowest levels, tornadoes themselves, actual, actual spinning. Cool, so is that sort of affecting the way that we're going to measure in future? Are we going to stick with the CF scale? Or like, can we use Doppler to now define these much better, presumably, can we? Not sure, in the future direction. No, I'm, I'm sure that the discussion will come up again many, many times over the next few years, and yeah, it's, it's hard to tell what the outcome of that would be. I think given how common having mobile radar near these storms is now and how accurate it is. There are two radars that measured the same speed, so they could, you know, they mm, could verify it, yeah. Could verify it. Um, 
I would, I would imagine eventually things may change, but it, that would be for other people to make those decisions. So, so tell us a bit about your visit to this experiment in Oklahoma then. Uh, so when are you guys going? It's pretty soon, right? So the experiment's already started, um, and uh, some of we've already sent some scientists out, out there and, and um, forecasters as well. So we're um, across the uh, five weeks of the experiment, we're sending six scientists out. We're sending six forecasters. I think there's about 60 different people taking part. Um, we've been sending model data out there for a couple of weeks now, so they've uh, had a bit of time to get used to uh, picking up our model data and, and working it. Uh, we're going out in a couple of weeks' time, um, and uh, for the time that we're there, um, uh, you basically start in the morning, I and mean, it starts with a very traditional uh, forecasting activity, something Steve will be very comfortable with <laughs> and that I'm very uncomfortable with, which is drawing a surface-based chart, picking up <laughs> observations and drawing isobars and fronts and, uh, and all the sorts of things that any good meteorologist should be able to do. Um, and then using that to, to produce a kind of uh, you know pseudo forecast for the, what the general circulation is in the US and where you think things are likely to happen. Um, but that kind of sets the scene. And then one of the uh, professional operational meteorologists out there will do the same thing. They'll say where they're looking. They'll take. They'll start then looking at um, some model data from uh, previous days and seeing what's leading up to that particular event. Um, and then during the day, basically, you spend a lot of time looking at model data, um, uh, comparing model data with observations as to what's already happened. And then you do some forecasting activities for um, uh, what's likely to happen later on in that day. And you look at what different models are telling you, what different products would tell you, um, and use that to try and understand what's likely to happen, but also the strengths and weaknesses of those individual products and, and observations and forecasting systems. Cool. I mean, so, so presumably there's a lot of people sort of uh, on call or, or waiting for these events to happen, right? You're, you, you don't really know what you're going to be doing that day until, until you get in the latest OBS and you can make your forecasts. Right? I mean, that's right. So one of, the, I mean, one of the great things about the US is that you've got this area called Tornado Alley. There's this large area of um, the kind of, kind of from the Midwest, kind of um, eastwards uh, in the United States. And it's a huge area. So this, the experiment itself is based in Oklahoma. Um, but the, the models that we're running and the observations that you have access to are all across that area. So the day before, you can look at the forecasts and decide where do we want to look at. Of course, something local is always good because then you've got the possibility of seeing what's happening um, close by as well. But if it happens to be uh, very far north on the Canadian border, then we could do some forecasting there. If it's quite far east, we can do that as well. And you can really spend some time focusing in detail on where the most interesting and most unpredictable weather events will be. And you have people out in the field as well that you're coordinating with? Occasionally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the two things don't tend to be perfectly linked up. So NSSL will often have field campaigns going on. I know that one of my you know, US colleagues is leading a field campaign during the, the, the HWT this year, but he'll be sampling near storm environments and occasionally he'll report back and give us some you know, information, but it's not coordinated in any kind of structured way where he's doing a slightly separate Got you. So how do you link this work back into weather forecasts for the UK specifically? I mean, the Met, we should say, you know, we said this before, the Met Office forecasts all over the world. So this is a useful thing to be good at anyway. But does it feed back into UK forecasting as well? Yeah, so that's one of the main reasons. Um, that's one of my particular interests is basically taking what we learn uh, during the experiment and applying it um, to understanding our own system. Um, so if we look at the models that we, uh, you know, maybe had 10 years ago for, for forecasting these sorts of events, I mean, the highest resolution models that we had had grid spacings of about 10 kilometers, which is where our global forecasting systems are now. And with those sorts of models, 
Um, you can look at the synoptic patterns and the things that will lead up to the likelihood of tornadoes happening, but you're not really representing the convection that's taking place. Now, everyone across the globe, but you know, here in the UK we're doing this, they're doing this in a lot of detail in the States, are running what we call convection allowing models. And these are much higher resolution models, grid spacings of you know, a kilometer, two kilometers, maybe three or four. Um, and in those models, not only do you capture that large scale flow, but you can start looking at the details of how individual convective cells form um, and how these uh, develop. Um, so they don't capture tornadoes. You can't, these models aren't high enough resolution to actually model a tornado. But what you can see are some of these um, shear events that we were talking about before, the sorts of uh, rotational events that can lead to the formation of a tornado. And you can see these building up in the models. So the focus of the HWT is very much on those um, convective uh, allowing uh, modeling systems. Um, and we um, are basically running a system over the US that in its uh, physical formulation is identical to our UK forecasting system. Mm -hmm. And so it will basically the performance of that system in the US experiment will teach us about um, the performance of it over the UK as well. Yeah, so we're not forecasting tornadoes forming directly, but we are now forecasting storms that can kick off tornadoes. And we used to forecast conditions that would create the storms that would kick off the tornadoes, right? That's so, it, exactly. so we've got one level lower now, but we're still not quite in resolving the, them directly, right? Exactly. And these models, I mean, they can, you know, we have these, um, you know, one of the, the kind of precursors to a, to a tornado can be these um, uh, supercell convective storms and these huge things that if you're on the ground, the, the clouds will fill up the entire sky. Yeah, so these are these are massive thunderstorms that look like the end of the earth, right? Yeah, and, that's yeah. right. And, you know, and you, you get this big shield which can go out and, and you know, it's a very flat area mm. and there's, there's not much on the horizon to block your view. So the scale and the, what, what your mind, the way your mind perceives the size of these clouds is phenomenal. Mm. Those things can be directly modeled by our, by our models now. Um, and, you know, if we take that and some other information that you can... Um, uh, you know, pick up from observations and other things, you can then imply the likelihood of tornadoes forming. I see. And so the tricky thing about forecasting these is that we're in a chaotic regime in convection, right? So we can only ever, even if we had the perfect model, we can only ever do as well as forecasting the probability of this stuff happening, right? Yeah, that's right. So each individual model can look realistic. It can develop a convective system and that can look like a realistic convective system. Um, and if you look at the details of what's happening within the model, you can learn a lot about what happens yeah. in the real atmosphere. But the location of where that thing is and the exact timing of where that thing is, um, there's, as you say, there's a, there's a chaotic element to it. Some of it's related to how well observed the initial conditions are. Uh, and some of it will just be to the fact that there's something wrong with your modeling system that gets mm -hmm. it in slightly the wrong place. Now, some of those areas we can deal with by what we call ensemble forecasting. So um, your model may put a, a supercell convective event in a particular location because that's an area where um, there's a likelihood of that happening. and It just happens in that forecast run to do that. So you know, with an ensemble system, you basically run lots of forecasts uh, side by side with slightly different initial conditions and slightly different um, setups within the model. And then you can look at the spread of these things between different members of that ensemble, where these things form. And, uh, and you can use that, as you say, to then infer probabilities and likelihood and areas where you think something might happen. Yeah, the tricky thing about the way I like to think about it is that when the situation's com um, chaotic, the, the thing that happens is only one possible future, right? And yeah, when you do right. an ensemble, you're actually getting lots of possible futures. Yeah, and in fact, what, what is likely to happen is somewhere between those things. So yeah. you, can't, you can't pick them up and say, right, I've got, you know, one one of the storms is exactly in this location, another one's exactly here. What those things are telling you is that if you look at enough of these things, it will tell you regions where something's likely to happen. And if lots of your ensembles are doing something in that location, then it will tell you that something's likely to happen in that region. So when we talked about the El Reno storm, we were talking about how it didn't do what we expected. 
So how common is it that we just get this sort of like a bust forecast or, you know, what actually happens in reality is something that wasn't even on the cards? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was a bust forecast. Okay. It was just a, almost like an interaction, as they said, with the cell behind it, you know, that changed the behaviour of the cell in front. And it's, it's so difficult, as, as, as David says, when modelling, we may model the first storm and if that's in the wrong location, the outflow and the inflow and how that first storm changes the whole environment can actually change the you know environment for hundreds of kilometers surrounding it yeah so it's um yeah such such subtle it's it's really hard to describe to explain a forecast bus because such a small initial error in the model can, yeah can lead to hugely different weather so it's like we were talking about these different levels just now weren't we? we were talking about forecasting a tornado directly forecasting the storm that makes the tornado and then forecasting the conditions that make the storm that makes the tornado and we can get the conditions forecast right yeah but if the storm's in slightly the wrong part of place they start to interact weirdly and you get this very sort of this result is miles away from where you thought you might be, even though you're getting the overall conditions correct, you know? Yeah, I'd, I'd say in these, in these environments, although you've, you've got these, these zones of, of greater you know, confidence where something is likely to happen, mm. I, I personally am never overly confident when it comes to severe convection because it's, you know, it's, it's one trigger in one location. It could, it's the champagne know, cork popping out, right? Exactly. It either pops out or it doesn't. It could <laughs> just be like a big, a big car park, you know, that was just hotter enough than anywhere else that we didn't know in our model that set it off in that one location. It's. I mean, you're, it's you're so, being literal, not metaphorical here, yeah, right? Um, it literally can be something like a black car park that actually pops the cork out the bottle and sets the whole thing off, right? In, in theory, that's a, that's yeah, a, that's yeah. a huge story. In theory, it could be if it's uh, it's warmer than the surrounding things around it. And we definitely don't model where there's a car park versus where there's a green field, you know, quite down to that degree. So, so we talk about the tornado season, which is sort of coming up, right? Spring and summer, right? So how well do we do at forecasting whether that's going to be a good, you know, a, a, yeah, an active tornado season or not? Well, so, so for the North America specifically, I think yeah. late spring is the, the peak season for their, uh, their severe tornadoes. There are, there are patterns and various things when you look at teleconnections that are more indicative and more correlated with, with tornado outbreaks mm -hmm. across the states. One's called a Pacific North American oscillation, mm -hmm. and when that's in a, a negative phase, that's that tends to mean we've effectively got a good dig down with a trough of the Rockies that's pulling up this warm air on the Gulf, and that that um, that makes it more likely that you're going to see recipes for severe storms across that area. But we, we should be really clear, clear that this is research, right? This is something that people are trying to figure out, and the best, you know, we were talking just now about forecasting tornadoes, forecasting storms that make tornadoes, then forecasting conditions that make storms that make tornadoes. All we can do is seasonal, is try and forecast the conditions, right? That make the storms that make the tornadoes, nothing more. And that's what you're talking about here, is how ocean currents interact with air moisture and instability and stuff, and so that's what we're trying to forecast. Very difficult though, like yeah. if you take it and look uh, across at uh, hurricanes, last year the Atlantic had a very, uh, a very below average activity, but yet there was two really severe hurricanes within that one below average season yeah. that both affected the United States and probably meant for insured losses and people looking at the hurricane season from the, that point of view thought, oh, this is one of the worst seasons we've had in, in years, despite meteorologically probably being well below average. And the same thing would come true of tornadoes, you know, for the most inactive season, you could still have an El Reno or something similar. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And it only takes one severe storm and one, one, one strong tornado to go for a highly populated place to, you know, to make the news and make it be perceived, you know, that forecast could be perceived to be wrong. It's it's such so difficult. Is that how as it happened over open grass affected nobody? Yeah, yeah. And nobody cares. So so difficult. best case scenario of this research pays off, we'll just be able to to forecast how the dice has been loaded for these seasons and no more than that, right? Yes. Yeah, 
again, it's we face it with UK seasonal forecasting. Mm. We it's try tricky. and we try and aim the things at responders, at informed users. You know who t- who take it probabilistically in their planning, and it, it's very difficult when it gets into the media who like you know like more hype um, to things, uh, more of a story, and to the general public who you know take above and below as quite a. Cool. Okay. So. How much does the, the experiments of scientists and forecasters add value to the forecasting of tornadoes then? Okay, so in the, um, uh, the US, one of the, the things that um, we get from this experiment, one of the things that we see in the experiment is um, we pull together forecasting systems that are generated by lots of different centers. So we're just one of the centers that's putting a system in. Um, I think there are uh, about 20 different operational or research ensemble systems being put put in for this experiment by six different centers. So Steve, how much does the experience of the scientists and the forecasters in this experiment, you know, how is that going to add value to the forecasting of tornadoes in the future? Yeah, I mean, significantly, I think, even at the moment, one of the things, as David's already mentioned, that we spend the start of each day on the HWT going through the real atmosphere, looking at the observations, and that's, that's to get a feel for how the model's performing. Yeah. You know, are they matching observations? Have they captured the outflow boundaries correctly? Because often in the US, if you get a, a huge um, storm complex the, the previous day, you'll have outflow boundaries which will be sweeping south across Texas. Um, and if the models have missed that, then they're not going to get the forecast mm-hmm. right. Um, and at the moment, you know, as David's already explained, you know, the models are, are capable of resolving these large supercell storms. Um, but they're not capable of resolving some of the hazards that are associated with them or the exact location or the timings. Um, so that they're sort of setting the scene really and the forecaster is putting the detail on that and issuing warnings and interpreting the radar and interpreting the model output. Um, and I think that will continue for quite some time yet. So we really need this sort of, this human in the mix to be able to connect, um, you know, our, our physical analysis mm-hmm. of the atmosphere to how people should take action based on that yeah. stuff, right? And that's becoming increasingly difficult, I think, from the point of view that the models are becoming more and more realistic looking. Mm. So they can look really realistic, but they can be completely wrong. Yeah, there's a really interesting discussion as this technology gets better. This happens with AI as well about how you use that as an effective tool and mm-hmm. don't abdicate responsibility to the magic computer that you know, you're know you assuming is getting the right answer because it's been very convincing, but often gets the wrong end of the stick, right? Yeah. Yeah, and if you, if you sort of think back to the Arvino um, storm, it was, what, 20 miles west of Oklahoma City, huge metropolitan area, um, and at 20 minutes out, the storm, you know, the tornado, widest in, in U.S. history, was heading directly towards a populated area. You yeah, know, and and that's when the forecasters got the pressure on because they're the ones that have to make the decisions on what's happening locally as to whether or not you're going to get disruption of the, the tornado. Do you put a warning out? Do you, you know, do you, yeah. do you basically result in panic to, to a huge city? at five o'clock in the evening on a Friday when people are going to, you don't want people basically stuck in cars in traffic jams with a two and a half mile wide tornado. There's always a boy that cried wolf kind of um, dynamic going on as well about how you get effective behavior. Yeah, credibility. So I mean, at the beginning we were talking about um, hurricane forecasting and these things being on a hugely different scale, both in terms of the spatial scale and the temporal scale. We've just seen um, uh, tropical cyclone Fony um, and this major impact that's had in India. But there you're able to forecast days in advance and evacuate hundreds of thousands, maybe a million people from a region where something's likely to happen. And you can use observations during the time that's evolving to see how accurate those forecasts are. 
Um, but what you can do is, you know, the, the, the timescales means that you, you've got long enough predictability to do really big action over mm -hmm. a long period of time. Um, you know, if we look at these uh, tornado forecasts, these things are evolving so quickly on such small spatial scales that really, the, you know, looking at the observations, seeing exactly what's happening on the time at the time and combining that with, you know, people's understanding of the atmosphere and what's happened in the past, um, you know, that, that's what you have to be able to do. And if we look at what our models are doing now, I mean, the amount of data that the forecasting systems are producing and that the observations are producing, it's becoming a huge data problem for forecasters yeah, to absolutely. take all this information in. You mentioned artificial intelligence before, but you know, any any time that um, we talk about the the problem of big data, then this is something that you know is going to be a tool that we're going to have to increasingly make use of. Sure, forecasters have got to go to sleep, right? And and an AI can stay up all night and wolf huge amounts of data looking for stuff. So, do do you see machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence more generally? Is that something that's on the cards here? I think combining, you know, the uh, observations and the observation-based kind of now casting that you can do, which is when you take an observation and you say, I'm going to use that to infer what's going to happen in the next 5, 10, 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Taking all that data and, and sifting through that and combining that with the model data, um, that's something that you know we'll, we will be making increased use of uh, AI. I think one thing that's always worth saying when we're talking about artificial intelligence in the context of weather forecasting is that we already know the laws of physics. So replacing um, models which directly resolve those. I, I personally don't see the mileage in that. However, being able to take that information and augment it with a, with a layer that can help you, you know, spot signals and stuff that you might spot otherwise, it sounds really cool. Sounds like there's potential there. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming and speaking to us. Uh, when do you guys go again? I leave on the 17th. And I'm going out on the 22nd. All right. Brilliant. I hope you have a good trip and, um, you know, hope you learn lots of useful stuff to bring back to the Met Office. So, Thanks again to David Walters, Steve Willington, and thanks Nick for coming back. Uh, the producer on this episode was Claire Nasir, and the editor was Simon Hammett, and this is a Mostly Weather podcast by the UK Met Office.